listeners, we are recording this episode on November 3rd, 2020, the year when anything can happen. It's a big day, so I'm told. Gerard, I haven't listened to any news yet today. We're recording this in the evening. I'm trying to hide under a rock for a little while. Are you going to be staying up all night to figure out who uh, the next leader of the United States will be? I'm going to stay up until 1 a.m. and then I'm cutting off. That's it. One a.m. One a.m. That's as far as I'm going. You're going to be like writing during that time, aren't you? You're going to be productive. You're going to be producing things, putting the rest of us to shame, as you do. (laughs) Well, there, there will be an option. Have a decision uh, about this, but uh, we'll see. In fact, the uh, the last one I wrote, I guess, would have been four years ago, in reference to some of this, uh, was based upon an REM song. It's the end of the world as we know it. That was a title. And yeah, we, we, thought, we, thought, we think we've been there. We, every time we think it's the end of the world, we find another end of the world, don't we? Exactly. I think we're all, we're all going to be okay. Okay. But so now this is The Learning Curve. This is a show about education. So my friend, predictions, you know, wh- wh- whomever wins, what, what are we going to see? I mean, we haven't heard much, if anything, about education really from either of these candidates. So where does this go? Uh, give me give me your predictions based on um, both candidates. Well, both will have to focus on higher ed. We haven't had a reauthorization of the Higher Education Act uh, the way we did with uh, ESSA. So higher ed is going to take a great deal of attention in part because of the pandemic and what it means for schools. So higher ed will get uh, more attention. Uh, charter schools, will find themselves on the front burner of debate uh, and depending upon who wins, more debate than the other. That's a totally new position for them, huh? (laughs) Oh, yeah. I think one that we often overlook is what will this mean for international students? Um, Hmm. You know, those who can stay in the United States because we allow them to do so to go to school. But people overlook the thousands of students from overseas who are in our K-12 system. Uh, So I think those four issues will come about and different administrations will deal with it differently. Yeah, I think you're right. And I think, I think too, that, um, you know, we don't, I, I, I sort of say, oh, we haven't heard anything about education from either of these candidates, but as you and I both know very well, so much, uh, that takes place at least in K to 12 education happens in the States. And so, um, so those of us that, that uh, are working to advance uh, certain issues that are working to make our schools better places and make uh, all types of schools available for kids. We'll continue to do that work at the state level, um, regardless of the election outcome this time of year. So that is, um, it's, these are interesting time, my friends, I tell you what, whomever wins, um, it's let, let's let let 2020 be over and let 2021 be here, better. Here. That's all I have to say. All right. I won't be staying up with you until 1 a.m., but there was something that was keeping me up the other night, um, which it shouldn't because I feel like um, I feel like we, we revisit this pretty much every year, every other year. And that is, my friend, the most recent NAEP results out again. Not good. Not great. We we could have done better, folks. Seems to be the refrain when it comes to NAEP scores. So um, especially um, so high school reading scores are down and they're not just down a little bit, Gerard. They're down. It's just the same old sad story. So as a reminder, why is NAEP important? NAEP is important because it gives us a pulse check 
on, you know, like what a sample of students across the nation um, knows, what they can do, the level at which they can read, whether or not they're proficient. We are quite accustomed in this country to dealing saying, with mediocre results, both on NAEP and on international assessments. My my darling husband, who is Argentinian, likes to opine about the state of the Argentine education system. And I always have to remind him that we're pretty much right there with him. Um, but, you know, interestingly, so uh, there's a great article in the 74 this week about NAEP results and a couple little highlights to point out. And, and the first is that, you know, the last time we really saw any meaningful sort of uptick in NAEP results, aside from those individual states and localities like Washington, D.C., that have seen gains over the years. But the last time we saw some meaningful results was really during that time, um, my goodness, George, 20 years ago, NCLB. Um, you know, when mm-hmm. we really started to think more about what does it mean to hold schools accountable? And I think more than that, that accountability, meaning for me in this case, shine the light on underperformance, shine the light on those schools, those districts, those places that were struggling to help kids um, to read and, 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 and perform in core subject areas at grade level. Um, so I think it's it says something. It gives me pause, especially in this moment when we're seeing, um, and of course, I'm not saying NCLB style accountability is perfect, but um, it's not something to be thrown away. And as we've discussed before on this podcast, um, we're seeing a lot of moves to just do away with accountability, period, rather than uh, mold it to something that fits our needs now and to learn from from the lessons of the past. But another interesting tidbit here is that Commissioner Peggy Carr had pointed, points out in this article that um, the, this decline in NAEP scores also correlates with an increase in graduation rates. So there's a little bit of optimism here in that she's saying that, you know, we've done a much better job of keeping kids in school and of getting them to graduate from high school. But that also means that we are now testing, especially at those high school school grades, a lot of children who wouldn't have been tested before because they simply would have exited the system. So getting kids through school and to that high school diploma, even when we see this depression in test scores, is better than having kids exit the system early. So I take that as one little um, kernel of hope. The last thing I'll point out that this article also points out is that this is just time and again when we see these reading results. We have to remind ourselves that there is this thing out there called the science of reading. And, and, and now more than ever, we know about the brain. We know about how kids learn to read. And we know that so many of our schools have been very slow to teach kids to read in a way that is proven by science. And that leads to a lot of struggling readers, especially early on. And we know that if you can't read when you're young, it's going to be an uphill battle the older you get. So shout out to, I mean, we've seen Mississippi make great gains and they have a really strong K3 literacy policy. Same with Florida. So NAEP is useful, I think, in helping us understand um, not only where students are performing, but you know, to some extent what works and what we need to be doing more of. So that's my take today. What do you have to say? I think you've given it some pretty good light. Um, I always look at this as more political ritual uh, than anything. I think it's important. I enjoy the wins. I was glad to see uh, Mississippi mentioned. Uh, you have uh, Peggy Brookins, and she is uh, the president of the National Board for Professional Teaching Standards. And she did a big push uh, in Mississippi to make sure there were national board certified teachers in place. 
to help push things forward. Now, I'm not sure whether or not those uh, teachers, in fact, work with the students who are doing well, but I know that uh, she believes that they matter and I follow her work. So glad to see it, but uh, I always raise my hand and throw confetti, but just just understand it as ritual. Yeah. Yeah. Well, part of mine, I think, is also ritual as we talk about charter schools. And this one is from Chalkbeat, uh, Matt Barnum, October 29th, uh, titled, DeVos Will Let Religious Groups Apply for Charter Schools, Opening Up a New Legal Battlefront. And she said earlier uh, the week that she would no longer enforce the prohibition from the Department of Education, saying that religious schools were unable to apply for federal funds to open a charter school. And she said, we're just going to change that. She said, quote, prohibiting religiously affiliated public charter schools is unconstitutional. And she said that's this at a forum in Kentucky. And she said the Department of Education's charter school program will not discriminate and will welcome religiously affiliated uh, applicants. And this was also a subject which was referenced in the article. Uh, Institute had a, an event on August 4th called Religious Charter Schools Legal Possible, Legally Possible or Politically Advisable. And there were people like Checker Fan, uh, Karega, Andy Schmerick, and a professor from Notre Dame, Nicole uh, Garnett. She said something really interesting. She said, I would prefer religious schools to be religious. And then she argues that charter schools are generally run by private boards rather than government boards. And therefore, they aren't the state. And if private actors can behave in a school choice manner, then I don't think then I think they can be authentically religious. Uh, that's a really interesting take for a few reasons. People who do not like charter schools have always said that charter schools are private schools or they're privately managed schools. Less than 15% of the charter schools in the country are managed by EMOs, which are education management organizations. We would call them the for-profit side. So it's a small segment of the market. Uh, number two, at least 90% of the charter schools in the country are approved by a local school board. Uh, most of those school boards are elected. So in fact, it's an elected body uh, government that is giving a charter to people like me when I opened up a charter school in Atlanta yeah. or in uh, New Jersey. You're on the charter school board of Massachusetts. You know how this runs. Uh, number two, just because you have a, a board uh, that may not be elected but appointed, uh, does it make it private if, in fact, they have 501c3 status? I just think using that term private, we have to be very careful because people who want to continue to say we're actually not public will say, see, this is what it was about all along. It was about bringing religious schools in there. Now, I don't care. Uh, maybe I should say this. I am fine if the department decides to say we want to do it and religious schools like Hill Hillsdale, for example, decides to get involved in operating schools. But let's remember two things. Private schools have received, uh, religious private schools have received Title II funds and Title I funds for decades. And in fact, That's decades right. before we had charter schools, private religious schools have been receiving religious schools, religious money for years. That's number one. And number two, if we now say this is something new, what about the private, uh, what about the Catholic schools in D.C.? that decided to convert to charter school. I even said then, I don't see how you can be a Catholic school that's a charter school. I think you can be a Catholic school that has a moral or moral ecology compass that's a part of the curriculum, but can it be truly Catholic in the true sense? Probably not and should not be. I just think we've got to watch the language on this, but I'm glad to see the debate. 
Yeah, I I think you're so right. And I think too, that um, it's (laughs) a lot of faith-based private schools will balk at the idea of, of, a religious charter school for the reasons that you just outlined, like, right. If you can't, um, be, if, if you're, if your charter schools are public, you are right on that point. And I agree with you fully that we need to be very careful with the language because boy, is that something that we have fought for years to help people understand that they are in fact public schools. Um, but you know, so many faith-based private schools are, private and and don't, don't really want a whole lot to do. Um, Mm -hmm. Some don't want anything to do with public funding is because they take very seriously the call to educate children in a certain faith. And that comes with in this country, a lot of entanglements, as we know. Um, I think that this is one to follow. You know, people have been asking the question of, will we have faith-based charter schools? As you point out, from the very beginning and it could very well be that we will, but yeah, let's, um, let's, let's watch what we say and let's watch the debate. And also just to channel Charlie Glenn for a minute, hope for a day when, um, we don't have to argue about these distinctions anymore because families can just choose the education that's best for their kid and not have to pay through the nose to do it. Um, that would be, that would be lovely. Okay. Gerard, we need to Switch from education talk because it is it is still election day. And on this election day, we are really lucky to have somebody take us to school. Her name is Tara Ross, and she is an expert on the Electoral College. So um, I'm really excited to talk to Tara because I watched one of her videos earlier today. It's well worth it. And, um, and you know, it, it's a timely topic. So coming up right after this. Well, Learning Curve listeners, this is a special day in more ways than one, and we are really excited to have with us somebody that can shed some light on, in fact, what's going on right now in our great country as people um, either have already voted or head to the polls to vote, um, because this is a presidential election, a lot lot of other elections on the line, 2020. Uh, We have with us today Tara Ross, a nationally recognized for her expertise on the Electoral College. That's right. You know you need a tutorial, and we have it for you today. Tara is the author of Why We Need the Electoral College, The Indispensable Electoral College, How the Founder's Plan Saves Our Country from Mob Rule, great title, and the children's book, We Elect a President, The Story of Our Electoral College and Enlightened Democracy, The Case for the Electoral College. Her Prager University video, which I in fact watched just this afternoon and highly recommend it, Prager's most viewed video ever with more than 60 million views. Tara earned a BA from Rice University and a JD from the University of Texas School of Law. Tara, welcome to The Learning Curve and especially thank you for being with us today. Oh, thank you. Thank you for having me. We're really excited. So, okay, obviously we're recording this, as I said, on uh, on election day, and there's been a lot of speculation. Will will what's happened in the past happen again? How long will this drag out? But the bottom line is that the winner of the Electoral College will become the next president of the United States. I'm we're really curious to know, number one, how how you became interested in this topic that so many people think they understand but probably don't. And and once you tell us a little bit about yourself, could you Give our listeners a clear explanation of how the Electoral College works and why we do it this way. Well, sure. Well, the answer to how I became interested in this topic is not what anybody expects ever. But the answer is that I was, I I broke my arm during my last semester of law school. I was in a taxi cab 
and I got in a wreck. You should always wear your seatbelt and taxi cab. It's very, very important. I was not wearing my seatbelt. And so I got thrown around a bit and I broke my arm. And the reason that's relevant is because I, um, I needed my writing arm to take notes in class and then I couldn't do that anymore. So one of the ways that I filled the gap that semester was I decided to do an independent study on the Electoral College. This was during the spring of 2001. And I thought, oh, this would just be easy. And I got to you know, get my hours and move on. <laughs> and, um, in some ways it was, but more importantly, what I discovered was how much I did not know about the Electoral College. I mean, you think you do, you, you, but you really don't. Our schools don't do a very good job no. of, of teaching this sometimes. And the other thing that I realized is that, I, you know, I looked at what was happening and people don't always know this, but Al Gore in October of 2000 thought that he was going to win the pop or sorry, lose the popular vote and win the electoral college vote. Now, of course, the complete opposite ended up happening. Mm-hmm. But in October of 2000, Gore was preparing. He had a team of lawyers investigating the electoral college, preparing to defend that sort of victory to the American public. And what I thought when I was studying this several months later was, well, look how easily this can go in in either direction. So either this is a good system that works for all of us, regardless of political party, or it's not. So, you know, I I felt like I learned so much that semester and, you know, I didn't know it was going to lead to two decades (laughs) of defending the electoral college, but here I am. So to answer the second half of your question, um, so this, how the system works is, you know, you said we're taping this on election day. When you go to the polls on election day, it looks like you are um, voting for president. You are actually not voting for president. You are voting for a slate of presidential electors who will represent your state. Now, this is the first phase of our election. There are 51 completely separate elections held in this country today. There is one in each state plus one in the District of Columbia. And each of these is a you know completely democratic, one person, one vote, everything everybody says that they want. That's what's happening in your state today. Um, I, I'm in Texas right now. So in Texas, we're casting ballots to decide will 38 Republicans represent our state in the Electoral College or will 38 Democrats represent our state in the Electoral College? These are completely different slates of people. They, um, you know, so just to, to the degree that's reassuring, we're not expecting, you know, a Democrat to go vote for Trump or a Republican to sure. go vote for Biden. These are completely different slates of people. Most states have chosen to award their electors in a winner-take-all fashion. There are two exceptions to that. The two exceptions are Maine and Nebraska. They do it by congressional district instead. So the winner of each congressional district will get one elector, plus there will be two electors awarded to whoever wins the entire state. So that is the first phase of our election. That's what's happening today. You know, at the, at the end of tonight, hopefully we'll hear some, you know, announcer <laughs> calling a state. We'll think, at least think we know who's going to win the presidency. But technically, the votes that de- determine that will not be cast for, for several weeks, not until the middle of December. And that's when those electors that we are selecting today will actually go, usually to the state capitol, but they will go and they will cast the official ballots in what the Constitution considers the presidential election. And in that day in December, it takes at least 270 electors to vote for, for a candidate and to put that person in the White House. If nobody gets a majority on that day, there's a backup procedure in the House, um, the House of Representatives to elect the president. Okay, so Tara, why is it? So this is, that is a very clear and concise explanation. Surely 
much better than anything I ever learned in government class in high school. Sorry, Mr. McCauley. But it, it, why is it that we do it this way? Why is it that the framers wanted to establish this mechanism to elect the president instead of just saying the person with the most votes wins? I think it's really important to look at the world as the founders saw it and, and what they were doing for their whole constitution, not just for the presidential election system. So we have to remember the founders, they, like, look, they lived, they fought a whole war, right? They fought a war for self-governance, no taxation without representation. And they had no seat at the table in parliament. If that wasn't right, you know, they fought, they fought a war. They lost brothers, they lost sons, they lost sisters and mothers. And they, the cause of self-governance was so important to them that, that that's what they did. Now, at the same time, they remembered something that we have forgotten. Even if they had been given a seat at the table in parliament, they would have been a minority in that body, outvoted time and time again by the majority of citizens at home in England. So they realized that it's not always as simple as just giving people a vote. It's, it's sometimes, you know, you got to figure out how can you blend these principles of self-governance with protections for minority groups? And, and so in their time, of course, that would have been the small states. So they created a constitution with lots of checks and balances, separation of powers, you know, presidential vetoes or supermajority requirements to amend the constitution, a Senate with one state, one vote representation versus a house with one person, one vote representation. So the electoral college is just another of these protective devices. And it's intended to ensure that yes, we are a self-governing people. The voice of the people is reflected in the choice of president, but also we want to make sure that fair or emotional or unreasonable majorities don't tyrannize everybody else. So you you posed the question, you said when you um, sat down to study this, you know, you said, wow, this is either a really great system or it isn't. So I hear you coming down on the side of this is a pretty great system, even if we might not like how it turns out sometimes. I'm sure. I mean, look, it, it when, when there is a discrepancy between the electoral vote and the popular vote, mostly that just means there was a close election, you know, and, and honestly, in 2016, it could just as easily have gone the other way. Um, and Hillary Clinton actually, again, like Al Gore, she actually thought she was going to win the electoral college vote and lose the popular vote. So she, she, she did the opposite of what she was supposed to do. She decided to like spend lots of time and money and resources driving up her vote in parts of the country that were already safe. And if she had done mm -hmm. the opposite, if she had gone to the blue wall states, if she had you know, reached out to a greater variety of voters there, she probably would have won the election. And I guess maybe to answer the first part of your question, really, this is what the Electoral College does for us. As it has worked out historically, it has encouraged coalition building. It has encouraged presidential candidates to reach out to a broader variety of people than they might otherwise have to. And this is because they have to get votes, they, they, they have to, they can't just get a whole bunch of votes, right? They have to strategically get them <laughs> around the country. They have to get them in multiple regions of the country. They have to get them across other lines that might divide us, um, whether it's region or like different industries in different parts of the country, you know, urban voters versus rural voters. There's so many different kinds of voters in this great diverse country of ours, but you cannot win the presidency unless you manage to get a cross section of them to support you. And so, I mean, that's a very good thing. We can, we can look at an election like 1888, which is much further away in time, and we don't have very many emotions about that, right? <laughs> so yeah. in 1888, Grover Cleveland, was he won the popular vote, okay? And he lost the electoral college vote. So he did not get to be president. 
however, not that year anyway, but he, but he, the reason he had won a popular vote and not the electoral college vote is because his support was not, um, it was too heavily localized in the South. It, he won mm. 72% of the vote in six Southern states. And that's why he won the popular vote that year. Well, I would argue that's a really good thing that we can't have a system where some mm. candidate based on the support of six Southern states gets to be president of the whole country, right? And in fact, Grover Cleveland seemed to have learned that lesson himself. And four years later, he did come back and he built a better coalition and he won that time. So it's, it's, this is historically what our system has done for us. It encourages coalition building. I realize it's really weird for me to talk about coalition building when we're also like angry at each other right now. We seem yeah. But I, I would say, I mean, what I've been saying really is that we are in a period of time, from my point of view, that is a lot like the period of time that existed after the Civil War. Okay, back then, late 1800s, angry, divided, you know, people, North versus South, people were really upset with each other. Um, there were election maps that just looked the same over and over again. It seemed like that would never go away. There were two elections, just like today, there were two elections where there was a discrepancy between the winner of the Electoral College vote and the winner of the recorded national popular vote in 1876 and 1888 that happened. And, you know, it just, humans are stubborn, <laughs> so they stayed there for a few, for a little while, unfortunately. But eventually, it just was unproductive to stay there, right? I mean, if you're a Democrat in the South in the years after the Civil War, you do not have enough electoral votes in your safe state to, to do anything. You're not going to win the White House unless you figure out how to get votes from somebody that's not like you. Likewise, yeah. Republicans had enough votes, but just kind of barely in their, their safe areas, largely in the North and Northwest. So, I mean, they could rely only on their safe voters, but they risked losing if, if Democrats made any inroads at all. So what happened over time is the parties had to figure out how to reach a hand across the aisle. They had to figure out, how do I gain the trust of people that maybe live slightly, you know, live a little bit differently than I do, a different part of the country or a different industry or whatever it is. And, and so over time, the anger and the division, you know, it, it helped and it helped make it better. And by the early 1900s, and people like Calvin Coolidge and FDR were winning, winning the presidency in massive landslides. And so I would say today, look, it's an ugly place. We're not, I don't like it. Nobody likes it. Nobody but likes it. No, we, nobody likes it. But if we get rid of the electoral college, we will get rid of the one aspect of our presidential election system that forces us to build coalitions and that encourages that. And that, that's not good for anybody either. Welcome to the show on this very uh, historic day. I'm already learning a ton of stuff. So I'm in Virginia. So of course, I have a question that's going to include James Madison. So James Madison and the framers were uh, careful students of history, especially the lessons of ancient Greece and Roman republics and democracies. What were some of the lessons they drew from ancient democracies and how does the U.S. Constitution and the Electoral College help to remedy the excesses of public passion that have so often just ruined popular governments across history? Well, I mean, you're absolutely right. The founders were students of history in, in ways that we are not. <laughs> none, none of us really are. Um, it, but they had spent time looking at it, studying it. At one point, James Madison wrote Thomas Jefferson, who was in Paris at the time, asking for books. Um, yes, because Jefferson had offered, yes, I want books and books. And so he got all these books on history and political philosophy. And at the convention, the delegates, they studied you know, the failed histories of, of some of these past democracies and republics and what had happened and what caused them. 
to fail and just debated it. They debated it all summer, I think in a very nonpartisan way that we can't imagine now, right? I mean, there was no Republican or Democratic Party back then. The biggest bias they had was between the large states and the small states. And so, you know, and that I think probably proved to be a pretty healthy bias <laughs> to have that, that bias defending defending your state like that. So, you know, look, and I think what they learned is they learned that democracies are just, they implode, right? The, a simple democracy, it, 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 it sounds appealing to modern ears, I know, but if you look at the history of those systems, what you see is that their and emotional majorities tend to rule or they tend to tyrannize other people. And, and that's because humans are flawed and because power corrupts and because there's no, there's, just, there's no way we can fix that, right? And in fact, I think it's one of the things that's most misunderstood about the founders. People say, oh, you know, the founders were just a bunch of elitists who, who didn't trust the people. And so that's why they created the Electoral College to take the selection of the president away from the people. And you hear stuff like this. It's not true. I mean, the founders didn't trust, didn't trust anybody, right? I mean, so, so yeah, they didn't trust the people because they knew people are perfect, but they didn't trust elected officials either. They didn't trust the Senate. They didn't trust the House. They didn't trust the president, they didn't trust the judiciary, they didn't trust the states, they didn't trust the federal government. There's a historian named Carol Burpin who says those men were the most likely men to be elected the first, the first U.S. Senate and, of course, the first U.S. president. And they were so convinced that, you know, the people are fallible and that power corrupts. They didn't even trust themselves. They sat there and debated how to put checks and balances on themselves. And so I just think that is one of the things that is fundamentally misunderstood about the dele delegates of the Constitutional Convention. They just didn't trust anybody. So there's checks and balances on everything. That's a good point. My next question is going to play history and then more modern times. So periodically when we look through U.S. history, including the elections of 1800 and 1824, when the House of Representatives finally selected a president, and in 2000, when the U.S. Supreme Court resolved uh, the Florida recount controversy, the Electoral College seemed not to have worked, uh, according to some. So in your view, what went wrong in these and other notable uh, elections across time? Um, well, I don't think, I, I wouldn't say the Electoral College failed in any of those. Um, 1800 okay. was just a tie, you know, and I guess I guess you could say that they should have they should have, I don't know, put more thought or anticipated that political parties would rise up and they would need to distinguish between votes cast for president versus vice president, which they, they hadn't. And so that's why that tie occurred. Um, but they separated a few years later and it was fine. In 1824, I, I don't I, I don't see that as a failure either. I see it as an election with several candidates. And so the backup procedure went into operation like it was supposed to, and that's what happened. Um, we've never used that backup procedure since. In 2000, I would definitely say, I would not say the Electoral College failed in that, in that year at all. To the contrary, what the Electoral College did for us that year is it helped to isolate problems to a single state, Florida, so that we didn't have to recount the whole country as we otherwise might have had to do. I mean, people don't remember, there were voting problems in other states um, during that election year. And we ended up, just none of them, <laughs> I mean, all... We didn't chase those, I don't know what's the phrase I'm looking for, but we didn't chase that down to its, um, you know, to its ending. We just, we didn't have to, because we knew that if whatever happened in Florida, that was going to decide the whole thing. And so all of the efforts were focused on Florida. And let's figure out what the true answer is in Florida, and then we will go on to our certain election outcome. The same thing happened in 1876, 
There were disputes after that election. But again, the problems were isolated to three southern states, again, including Florida. <laughs> and then there was one elector in Oregon that was disputed. But in 1876, again, that, you know, that was a close election. And you can imagine that recounts and litigation and whatever happened all around the country would have been awful. But instead, they could just isolate their problems to three places, figure out what the correct outcome should be there, and then move on. So, you know, I, I think that's a huge benefit of the Electoral College. And, and it could, elections could really spin out of control without that particular feature. When we, we talk about Florida and the 2000 election, we put all of it on Florida. Had it gone a different way, then Gore would have been president. But people overlooked the fact that he lost his home state of Tennessee, which had 11 electoral votes. Had he won right. his home state the way he did when he was with uh, Clinton twice, and as he had when he was a senator and as he had when his dad, it had been a different story. But that's, a, that's another conversation. You know, one thing that I often hear uh, is the Constitution is racist by design. Uh, there's some who say that the three-fifths clause uh, was put in place to help uh, propagate the Southern population who later had more power. In the last two years, there's been a lot of conversation as well about the racist nature or intent of the Electoral College. Through your research, have you found that to be true, false, or somewhere in the middle? What I will say is, look, the, the discussions at the convention about the presidential election system, you just don't see commentary about slavery or the three-fifths compromise even really. I mean, it's, they just, that's not what they're talking about. What they are talking about is the, the balance of power between large and small states and how to handle that. And the other thing they're talking about is how to divide power between a president and the legislature without making the president too dependent on the legislature. And the reason that is, is because the two main ideas that were on the table one was legislative selection of the president. So imagine, you know, Pelosi and McConnell trying to hash that out today. <laughs> That'd be fun. Oh, nice. <laughs> so, I mean, that, but that was one idea. And the reason they did not want to do that was because they worried that if the president was too dependent on the Congress for reelection, then he would not be independent. And, and if, again, we, we have checks and balances, all this stuff, right? He needs to be his own part of the system of checks and balances. And so they worried about that when it came to legislative selection. The other idea on the table was the national popular vote idea that people want today, but the small states were vehemently opposed to that. And I might note the division is small versus large here, okay? The small states, the delegates included slave owners and people who were working against slavery. Also on the large state side included slave owners and people who were working against slavery. I mean, there's just, there was no divide between slave versus not slave. There was a divide between large and small states. But when it came to the small states, one of the, I mean, there was a delegate from Delaware who expressed the sentiment of so many small state delegates when he said, he looked across the room with one of my favorite quotes from the convention. And he says, I do not trust you, gentlemen. I do not trust you, gentlemen. <laughs> if you had the power, the abuse of it could not be checked and you would exercise it to our destruction. And that's how the small state delegates felt when it came to this. And that was the driving force behind the electoral, co compromise, electoral college compromise when it was made. It was about the balance of power between large and small states. How do you create a successful self-governing society 
when you have a variety of states and a variety of sizes with a variety of different kinds of interests that need to be re represented in the, in the presidency. And this was the answer they came up with. Wow, that that quote, I do not trust you. I think <laughs> it, 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 it's, it resonates so much today in, in this current moment. So explaining this system to us and and also just thinking about, as as you noted, that we seem to be uh, there seems to be so little trust right now <laughs> in American politics. That is right. it's a really fascinating insight. So, well, before we let you go, Tara Ross, I won't necessarily ask you to predict who is going to win the election, but do you think <laughs> that we're going to have results of this election in due time? Well, this is what I'll say about that. And I guess in a few hours, we'll know if I'm right or wrong, right? But <laughs> in order to have the kind of disputes that we saw in 2000, or in order to have an election that's stolen or, you know, that sort of thing. You, the, the Electoral College protects us against that. Now, can it, it doesn't make anything possible, right? I can't turn, I can't wave a magic wand, but I can tell you that the Electoral College definitely makes it much, much better. And the reason for that is because in order to steal an election or to end in some kind of dispute that goes on and on and on, you need several things to come together all at once. First, you need the national electoral total to be close, close enough that swinging one or two states is going to make a difference, right? And, and then simultaneously, you need a couple of states, um, I guess in 1876, it was three states, to be close enough, like, with, like states holding the right number of electoral votes that coincide with the margin at the national level, <laughs> and that those states are also close, or that there's some reason to dispute the electoral votes in those states. And so, and so then you have something to dispute, right? And so, look, if there's a wide margin between the two candidates tonight, then this is going to, even if there's a problem in Pennsylvania or what, whatever's going on, it's not going to matter, right? If the margin's bigger than the 20 mm -hmm. electors that Pennsylvania holds. Mm -hmm. So you just, you need several things to all come together at once. And obviously it can happen. It did in 1876 and it did in 2000. But maybe what's also notable here is that I, I can list on two fingers <laughs> the number of times that this has really been an issue like that. So I, I am more optimistic than many that, that we will actually know the answer to this in, the, in relatively short order. Um, in 2004, you may remember everybody was so worried because 2000 had just happened and yeah. everybody thought, oh, it's going to go on and on. And then it's like totally melt, like anticlimactic, right? <laughs> it was like, it was well, I, for one, so, will take a little bit of anticlimactic these days. So, <laughs> oh my God. On the other right. hand, it's 2020. It's 2020, exactly. right? Exactly. Exactly. So <laughs> you just yeah. never know. Thank you so much for your work and thank you for spending this time with us. It's really fascinating and timely, and we feel so lucky to have you with us today. And I guess we'll know more tomorrow. So we might have to call you back. Uh, you never know. Uh, call me if you need me. Okay. <laughs> Thanks so much, Tara Ross. Thank you. And even on election day, we're going to close it out with the tweet of the week. And it is going to, we're taking it back to education. This is from Michael B. Horn, friend of the show, lives uh, not too far from where I am right now. And he uh, has a piece out in Forbes. His tweet is, my latest for at Forbes, delves into why we decided to homeschool our daughters this year and how we arrived at our decision. Hope our thought process is helpful to others. It, you know, I have to say from my perspective, it was helpful to me. So I count as one other. So we'll go with that. What I really like about this piece is that it outlines, um, you know, that this wasn't um, a decision born of, 
oh my goodness, our public schools are so terrible. Our district school is so terrible. Or wow, I we we lived through the spring um, learning at home episode and decided that we were really good at this. It was like this really this process of trying to figure out how would, how do the kids learn? What do we as parents value about um, value? in an in education for our children. And, and for this family, it came down to character and habits of mind, among other things. And then it was sort of a wait and see. He even describes doing this little dance with the district. Could we open a few micro schools in the district? Could we, you know, try and accommodate um, safety concerns and teachers and students and families in these different innovative ways? And ultimately, the district wasn't in a position to offer that. And so Michael B. Horn and his wife decided that they were going to take on the, the big task of homeschooling their children. Now, um, don't have to tell any of our listeners, it's a big endeavor to homeschool kids. It often involves um, folks making concerted decisions about you know, what they're able to do with their career or who's going to stay home, but it can also be um, an incredibly beautiful experience. So highly recommend this article to our listeners. It's a good one and well worth the read. Okay. We will be back, listeners, next week. Um, we'll have a lot more to talk about then. Will we be back tomorrow? <laughs> will we be back? Is it the end of the world? Is it? it is not. We're going to be okay. But we've got another great guest next week, Gerard. We're going to be talking to Jason Riley. You know him, senior fellow at Manhattan mm -hmm. Institute, columnist for the Wall Street Journal. I bet you he'll have a lot to say. Um, maybe, maybe we'll have a president by then. Tara Ross thinks we will. So we'll go with it. Until then, Gerard. Um, don't stay up past one, and I'll be waiting for your latest thought piece. All right. Thanks a lot. Take care. Take care.